Good morning. Welcome to the Sunday after Thanksgiving and the first Sunday of Advent, the coming of Christ we celebrate on December 25th. My name is Steve Coleman, and I'm really glad you're here with us this morning. I have a question for you as we contemplate the Christmas season. What is your favorite part of Christmas? What are you looking forward to the most? There are a lot of traditions to choose from. My son's family loves the Advent calendar and the countdown to the holiday the best. We just participated in another custom near the beginning of this service, the Advent wreath. The best research can determine the Advent wreath and candles started in the 1800s by a German missionary, Johann Heinrich Wittgen, who started a school for poor children in the city of Horn. During the month of December, the children would pester him and ask daily if Christmas had arrived. Johann built a large wooden ring as a wreath with 20 small red and four large white candles. A small candle was lit every weekday and Saturday. On Sundays, a large white candle was lit. The custom gained ground among Protestant homes in Germany and evolved into a smaller wreath with four or five candles known, at, known today. In the 1930s, it spread to North America. So you could say we have an Advent wreath because of nagging children. Well, my suspicion is that at New Hope Chapel, most of our children and many of our adults would say that they were looking forward to the gifts they will get. You children out there, go ahead and turn to your parents and remind them, gifts are important. Yeah, it's great getting gifts and giving gifts too. When we talk about giving gifts around Christmas, the first gift giver, of course, was God when he sent his unique son to be born of Mary. This Advent, over the next four weeks, we will be talking about some of the gifts we receive from Jesus coming that have changed our lives. The first this week is hope. Then next week, we'll talk about peace and the following week's joy and love. Today, we want to answer the question, what does it mean for us to have hope? Well, let's begin with prayer. Father, as we begin this period of celebrating the gift of your son, we thank you for making him our Emmanuel, God who is with us. We are grateful that he is as present with us now as when we meet in the same building. Lord, we cannot live without you. As we read familiar texts this morning, we ask that your spirit would make them fresh for us, that we would see in them your love and care for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is hope? We use the word hope in at least a couple of different ways. We use it when we really want something, but do not have a particular expectation of receiving it. Just like a, a man with a metal detector going over the sand at a beach. I hope I find something valuable. Or a woman. There's a raffle at work. I hope I win the prize. We would be happy and surprised if it really does happen. We're not counting on it. We do not have the confidence for it. It is a wish, not an expectation. We also use it to express a certain level of certainty. Someone might say, I hope to pick up milk when I go to the store. Or your mother's doing well, I hope. We're expecting it to be true. We're counting on it. We have a level of confidence in it, and we will be surprised or even shocked if it doesn't happen. That The kind of hope we're talking about in the Bible this morning is that second kind, the confident expectation. 
Titus, Paul begins the letter, Paul, a servant of God, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. He had a confident expectation. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer of Hebrews is talking about uh, how God's promises were made. And he writes, People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to any argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised to Abraham, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. God made promises and God keeps his promises. The kind of hope we'll have we have for those promises is not a wish. It's not a, I hope that is true, or wouldn't it be great if it were true? No, it is a certainty. He describes it as an anchor for us, something we're meant to hold on to because it is firm and won't give. Well, let's look up that kind of hope in God in relation to Christ, Jesus Christ's first advent, Christmas. We'll consider beginning of the, the beginning of the Christmas story that's in Matthew's gospel. You know, of all of Gospels, Matthew has a particular emphasis on connecting the Old Testament with the New. You could say that Matthew is writing as a Jew to Jewish listeners or readers. If we put ourselves in the place of a Jew in a very early Christian church, hearing this read, some things would have jumped right out at us. So let's try to get our heads into the mindset of a first century person raised in Judaism. Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And the genealogy goes on with a bunch of names, three sets of 14 generations in all, from Abraham to Joseph. It continues near the end of the genealogy. Mephan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Picking up a little later, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her from the Holy Spirit is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. You are to call him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him. Those first century Jews would have understood something very clearly when hearing that genealogy and narrative. And I think it's that 
God is a God who keeps his promises. I think it would have stood it right out to them. Why do I think that? Four reasons I think they would walk away with this idea. Number one, the genealogy. You know, to us in the Western world, a genealogy is a list of names that connect the heritage of ancestors with our current situation. To Jews, the genealogy would have amazed them because it reached back to Abraham and mentioning his name would have instantly brought to mind the promises of God that were made to Abraham and were viewed as so central to Jewish identity and purpose. God is reminding them that one is to come who is the fulfillment of the promises, the deliverer, the Messiah that every Jew was born and raised to expect. They would have been struck by the God who keeps his promises. Secondly, Matthew uses the phrase, son of David. It occurs in Matthew more often than all the other Gospels combined. The Jews would have understood that this Messiah was not only the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, but that he would also come through the kingly line of David. This was the title that was applied to the Messiah as the one to sit on David's throne and rule forever. Throughout Matthew's Gospel, he continues to use the phrase, Son of David, Son of David, Son of David, here, there, and everywhere. He is signaling to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah that they would have been waiting for. By repeating that phrase alone, Matthew is establishing that Jesus was the fulfillment of God's promises for a deliverer and that God keeps his promises. Thirdly, the declaration from the angel of the Lord to Joseph. The angel told Joseph that the child was conceived through the Holy Spirit. In other words, what was happening was from God himself. The, this Messiah was from God and was not simply a normal human person. From the reading of the Old Testament, the Jews could tell that there was something unique different about this Messiah. It was hard to imagine a human that would be able to fulfill all those promises. It was no less than God himself who could meet all the promises about who the Messiah was and what he would come to do. And fourth and finally, Matthew includes a prophecy in his text and specifically stated that it was fulfilled by Jesus. Well, Matthew peppers his whole gospel with these quoted prophecies. He is continually connecting the dots throughout his book for the listening Jew between prophecies and fulfillments. Again and again and again, he is drawing their attention like a flashing light to the Old Testament expectations and then the New Testament reality in Jesus that completes them. Persistently, Matthew reaches out to the Jewish mind with the message, God keeps his promises. Well, Christmas is more than food, traditions, getting off work, decorations. Christmas is more than all of these things. The first thing that should give us hope this Christmas is that Christmas is a great reminder that God doesn't lie. He keeps his promises. You know, in Numbers chapter 23, God told a man, Balaam, to communicate a message to the Moabite king, Balak. The message began like this. God is not human that he should lie, not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? 
Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot change it. Christmas is a reminder to us that God does what he says he will do. What he says, you can count on. He has never lied. Not only is God a keeper of his promises, but also Christmas is a reminder that God is with us. Matthew quoted Isaiah in his text. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew is announcing here in his first chapter that Messiah is coming and just what kind of Savior we can expect in Christ. Jesus is explaining that he is the kind of Savior who has chosen to be with you. He's going to be a present Savior and not stand at a distance from you. He saves from sin, but he wants so much more than that. He wants to live with his people. You know, God's been signaling his intentions. You know, he wanted to visit and walk with Adam and Eve in the garden. In Exodus 25, the series we've just completed, the building of the tabernacle, we noted that God wanted to dwell with his people. One place he gave instructions and said, have them construct a sanctuary for me so that I may dwell among them, his people. They set the, the tabernacle up in the middle of the camp. And when the people had sinned, God had Moses move uh, his tent to outside the camp, and God met with Moses there. So dwelling among his people was a priority for God, and he wanted to be able to do that. We switched to the New Testament, and in John chapter 1, we read, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later in chapter 14, he writes, Jesus saying, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he says, as Jesus talks further, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching and my father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. The Great Commission Christ says, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Well, to the Jewish mind, they certainly understood the greatness and holiness of God. Again, in Exodus, the Jews understood the symbolism of the fire and the smoke on the mountain when Moses went up to receive the Ten Commandments of God. They understood his holiness. They understood how awesome he was, how beyond anything they could imagine he was. They understood God's anger and judgment in his destruction of Egypt to set the children of Israel free from slavery. But even though they would have been aware of Isaiah's prophecy, they would not have fully appreciated the significance of this quality of God's, the idea of Emmanuel. How can we know that? Well, Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians that it's something that wasn't fully revealed in the Old Testament. He uses the term mystery. Listen for it. 
In Colossians 1.27, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christmas reminds us of Emmanuel, the God who is with us, the God who is in us. Matthew is introducing a Savior who would save, but would also be with you. A God who would walk with you and go through all the ups and downs of life with you. He would care for you, laugh with you, hurt with you, cry with you. God who would be in you. The second thing that should give us hope this Christmas is that Christmas reminds us that God wants to be with us. It's a revolutionary idea. To help us understand this, the Christian writer and novelist Dorothy Sayers wrote, The incarnation means that for whatever reason, God chose to let us fall, to suffer, to be subject to sorrows and death. He has nonetheless had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He himself has gone through the whole human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and, suffering infinite pain all for us, and thought it well worth his while. We've talked about how the word hope is used in the Bible in its secondary meaning as a confident expectation. But what does it mean to have hope? It means we can have hope regardless of our circumstances this Christmas because Christmas is a reminder to us that God keeps his promises. Christmas is also a reminder to us that God is with us. If you're familiar with the TV drama West Wing, it is about the trials and tribulations of a presidential staff. In it, the wise chief of staff, Leo, tells one of the department heads, Josh, the following story. This guy's walking down the street when he falls in a hole. The walls are so steep he can't get out. A doctor passes by and the guy shouts up, hey you, can you help me out? The doctor writes a prescription, throws it down the hole and moves on. Then a priest comes along and the guy shouts up, Father, I'm down in this hole. Can you help me out? The priest writes out a prayer, throws it down the hole and moves on. Then a friend walks by. Hey, Joe, it's me. Can you help me out? And the friend jumps in the hole. Our guy says, are you stupid? Now we're both down here. The friend says, yeah, but I've been down here before and I know the way out. Jesus is the friend who jumps into the hole. We have hope because Christmas tells the story that Christ jumped into the hole with us and said, the good news is, I know the way out. When you believe in a God who keeps his promises by sending his son to die in your place, you have forgiveness of sins, eternal life, you get God's spirit living inside you and all the other promises God has made. The takeaway for us is the same one that the original first century Jew would have had. Christ is our hope. 
Let me remind you that this is a time when people could really use some hope. Peter writes in his first letter, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. It could be that God brings a person across your path this season that is in a hole, and you could be the one to jump in and come alongside them. Before we pray, I've placed on the screen the New Hope Chapel website in case you have any questions about our church. I've also placed my email address on the screen if you have any questions or want to interact about this message. Appreciate it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our time. We are grateful to you that we have a hope that's sure and strong. Thank you so much what you've given to us. In your name, amen.